for me, what I loved about theater was really this idea that you were taking a mastery of material and you were having to perform it under sort of this mix of very intense emotions, um, exhilaration, terror, and having to take that material with all of these emotions swirling about and get on stage and perform it in front of an audience um, and learn how to control all of those feelings to do your best, recognizing that no matter how prepared you were, there was always going to be something that went wrong. There was always going to be some element of improvisation that had to take place. And when I describe this, just even to you right now, I really could just be describing emergency medicine. Welcome to the Emergency Mind podcast. I'm Dan Dworkis, and this is a space where we bring together lessons from the emergency department and beyond about performance when it matters the most and applying knowledge under pressure. Our guest this episode is Dr. Lauren Allister. Lauren is a pediatric emergency medicine physician at Hasbro Children's Hospital in Providence, Rhode Island, and an assistant professor of emergency medicine and pediatrics at the Alpert School of Medicine of Brown University. She's also the associate program director for the Pediatric Emergency Medicine Fellowship at Hasbro Children's Hospital. During residency, I was lucky enough to get to do some of my pediatric emergency training under Dr. Allister. She is an absolute beacon of calm in even the most complex critical cases, and she's able to bring that calm not only to the staff around her and to the patient in front of her, but to the worried parents of that sick child as well. Over the course of this episode, we talk about developing and deploying analytical and personal performance scripts. These are protocols which simplify complex cases and can drastically improve performance. We talk about the concept of emotional mirroring, and interestingly, we get deep into the similarities between pediatric emergency care and theater. Fair warning, there's a little bit of static at the beginning of the episode, but it goes away after a minute or two once we're able to troubleshoot the relevant technology. Before we jump into the episode, a reminder, if you like what you hear, consider signing up for our newsletter. It's free, it's awesome, it's called Knowledge Under Pressure, and it does a deep dive into some of the topics we cover on the podcast, as well as bringing together resources on performance under pressure from a variety of interesting sources. You can sign up at emergencymind.com slash sign up. Also, if you have ideas of people you'd love to see on the podcast or anything else you want us to cover and dive into to improve your own performance under pressure, I'd love to hear it. You can email me directly at dan at emergencymind.com. Okay, all that said, let's get into it. I hope you enjoy. All right, Lauren, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It is, it is wonderful to get to talk to you again. It's been far too long, and I'm super excited for everyone else listening to this to, to get to sort of hang out with you and bask in your wisdom as I have been doing for years. Oh, well, thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here with you. Right on. So for folks that are not yet lucky enough to really know you, like who are you? What's your deal? What are you doing these days? Um, so I am a pediatric emergency medicine doctor, and that means that I trained in both pediatrics. So I did a pediatrics residency and then decided to subspecialize in emergency medicine, so then did another three years of pediatric emergency medicine fellowship. And so now I practice pediatric emergency medicine. I bounced around a little bit. I was at Boston Children's Hospital for my fellowship training. I worked at Massachusetts General Hospital for a wonderful nine years before <laughs> my family relocated to Providence, Rhode Island, where now I am fortunate enough to be an attending physician at uh, Brown Medical School and at the Hasbro Children's Hospital Emergency Department. And in that context at Brown and in, in sort of your day-to-day -day job these days, what are what are you doing? Are you entirely clinical? Are you seeing only kids? Do you see adults as well? Are, are you also teaching people? What's that look like? I do a mix. I don't take care of any adults, which was very intentional. I only take care of children. Um, so in the emergency department, clinically I work and I take care of children up to the age of 18, a huge mix of acute illness and injury. Um, we are the only children's hospital in all of Rhode Island, so we have a huge catchment area, and it's a wonderful mix of being both an academic children's hospital, but also having a true sense of community as we are sort of the it and only um, for the children of Rhode Island, which is really wonderful. And when I'm not working clinically, I've always been a clinician educator, so teaching has been my primary focus always. So I have a role as the Associate Fellowship Director for the Peds Emergency Medicine Fellowship at Brown. So I work very closely with our fellows. 
I also work with our pediatric and emergency medicine residents doing formal teaching, bedside teaching. And I actually work at Brown Medical School as well, doing some mentoring and teaching for uh, individual students and also those who rotate through our pediatric emergency department. So for folks listening who, who are not from the States, um, one of the many strange things about our healthcare system in the United States is that we sometimes, but not always, split emergency care between children and adults. And so generally speaking, if you show up for an emergency in a uh, small average or anything less than a really large city, a small average town or anything less than a really large city, you're going to go to an emergency room that is mixed children and adults, and you're going to see a provider, uh, an emergency provider, and all emergency providers are trained to see both children and adults. When you get to the larger cities where there's more concentration of resources, you often find that large centers either have a separate area or a separate wing of their emergency department for children, or sometimes even an entire separate building, an entire separate hospital for children. And, and the logic behind that, and this is something I hope that that we can press on a lot in this conversation is that emergencies that involve children are not the same as emergencies that involve adults. Only sort of they are, only sort of they're not. It kind of depends. And the training and the mental processes that we need to go through when we're dealing with a very different population um, or a population that we're not as, as used to providing for can be pretty different. And, and I hope we can press on that a little bit today. Um, so I guess let's start this way. So, so what got you into wanting to work with kids, what got you into pediatric emergency medicine? Because you said, I don't see adults, I don't see adults on purpose. And there was a definitive <laughs> hand motion that accompanied that. There certainly was. Um, I think that for me, I, I knew I loved emergency medicine. We can certainly dive into that a little bit as well. And when I was thinking about which patient populations I was most interested in treating, I think what appealed to me about working with children was this idea that there is so little self inflicted illness and injury. They truly are sort of innocent beings and almost these blank canvases. And there was something really wonderful about treating them, both because of the purity of diagnosis and treatment, but also I think clearly in terms of who they are as, uh, patient, as patients to work with. I think working with children, there's something so joyful about working with kids on a day-to-day -day basis. I think the energy they bring to every interaction, I think their resilience, both personally and medically, frankly. Um, and I think to some extent, too, there's a self-selected population who love to work with children. And I really enjoyed having that group of physicians as colleagues. So I think there was always those were sort of floating in the, the ether for me. I think when I worked in a general emergency medicine department, caring for adults and sometimes children, as you mentioned. I think by nature, maybe you can speak more to this as an emergency medicine physician, I think by nature of treating adults and some of what they bring to the medical table, there's a certain amount of emotional hardening or armor one acquires in order to handle the sort of slings and arrows of being an, a general emergency medicine physician. And when I worked there, I'm a pretty glass half full optimistic person. And I worried that in treating adults for the long term, that would slowly sort of erode the qualities that I really valued in myself and felt that I brought to the table as a physician. And I felt that my self-preservation as both a person and a physician was sort of best suited with children as my primary patient population. So that makes sense. And, and I think that that challenge of maintaining um, a human connection and being open to the reality of what you're facing and also being, um, I don't know if protected is the right word, but, but maintaining your own health and your own emotional health as you're treating patients is a really important, really important thing. And, and it is sometimes different with, with kids. Is that something that had always interested you? I mean, like if you go all the way back to, I don't know, as far back as you want to go, uh, were you always interested in working with kids or, or what was what was early Lauren like? Uh, well, I think for the purposes of this podcast, um, I would say <laughs> I think that I was always interested in working with kids. My um, mother was a first grade teacher. So I had always spent a lot of time clearly with someone who loved children and working with children. I spent a great deal of time in her classroom and in that world a little bit. So I sort of recognized the power of having a long-term relationship 
with children and what that meant on a day-to-day basis and how you brought that to your home life. Um, And I think that I didn't necessarily think I wanted to be a pediatrician per se, but when I went to medical school, fairly undifferentiated, like many of us, uh, initially I actually thought I wanted to be an obstetrician. So I knew I loved children just in a slightly different form at that point in time. (laughs) And I think what happened for me with pediatrics was it was right at the time when managed care was really taking over medicine. And there were so many disgruntled physicians, those who were angry about the sort of insurance and business side taking over the practice of medicine, um, people who felt that the tides were really turning in medicine. And when you're an impressionable medical student, those opinions from your senior physicians are quite impactful. And what I found was that when I was working with pediatricians, I didn't experience that. Mm. That group of physicians really still loved what they did. And I think it's pediatrics tends not to be one of the more higher paying fields in medicine. Not that the money wasn't important as it is to all of us to some extent, but it wasn't a primary driver for the choice to go into pediatrics. And so somehow maybe they didn't feel the impact the way some other subspecialties and fields of medicine did. And I think being around a group of physicians who had real joy in their practice um, was quite meaningful at that impressionable stage of my career. So not only was I spending time working with kids, but I was also working with a group of physicians who had real career satisfaction. And I think that really meant something as well. And, and why medicine? What got you into that to begin with? Well, I, when I think about medicine, I, I, like many of our colleagues, even though I always worry that it seems a little trite to say this, but I definitely felt called. I felt very early on that I wanted to be a physician. And I could talk about some environmental factors that probably played a role. My mother became quite ill when I was nine. Um, I had pretty terrible childhood asthma, so had a lot of interaction with the medical system at a fairly young age. But I think like for many of us, it was something sort of indescribable um, that made us realize that we were called to service, um, called to take care of others. And I felt that from as young as I can remember, almost sort of eight or nine years old. And I think that the only other pull for me other than medicine was theater, actually. Hmm. And sometimes when I say that, people do a double take because those sort of two fields seem somewhat diametrically opposed from each other. And I did theater all through school um, and for a brief moment seriously considered actually applying to college level theater programs before I really opened the door wide to a medical career path. And when I think about theater, and there were reasons why I didn't go down the path of theater, some of which are fairly pragmatic, um, but I think for me what I loved about theater was really this idea that you were taking a mastery of material and you were having to perform it under sort of this mix of very intense emotions, um, exhilaration, terror, and having to take that material with all of these emotions swirling about and get on stage and perform it in front of an audience um, and learn how to control all of those feelings to do your best, recognizing that no matter how prepared you were, there was always gonna be something that went wrong, there was always gonna be some element of improvisation that had to take place. And when I describe this, just even to you right now, I really could just be describing emergency medicine. I think I was sort of looking for that maybe always in my career subconsciously, that yes, I was called to medicine. Yes, I knew I wanted to provide a service. I recognized that children were probably my patients of choice. But then when I really thought about how can I best work with children in a way that felt sort of true to who I was and the emotional kind of milieu that I wanted to work in, emergency medicine is probably the best comp for theater of any subspecialty I can think of. And I think that's sort of naturally how I found myself there. Lauren, not only is that an amazing analogy, that's the most well put together like origin story I think I've ever heard of something. And that that just dwarfs like 
mine seems so totally fragmented and nonsensical <laughs> in comparison to that. So if you're listening to this and you don't have a totally well put together narrative, like that's totally cool too. Everything everything will work itself out. Um, <laughs> but that's amazing. And and the way you described that, you know, mastering the material and then trying to to hold on to that mastery under uh, really complicated emotional situations as well as a really shifting landscape underneath you. What did that feel like when you were doing that? Do, do, do you have a moment where you remember being like, yes, I love this. This is, this is a thing that I really care about. Or how, how did you train for that? Well, it's interesting because I could tell you I have moments both from the stage and from the emergency medicine landscape that are quite similar in terms of story. I mean, I definitely have a lot of memories of being backstage with sort of racing heart, sweating palms, you know, getting ready to go on stage to sing my Sondheim or perform my monologue or whatever it was and feeling like I wanted to dance up and down with joy and then also throw up before I went on stage. And I absolutely have feelings and memories of being a young physician and walking into a code situation with a critically ill or injured child and having those exact same feelings. You know, when you get on stage, I think it's sort of the spotlight hits you. You see the audience and something clicks inside you and allows you to perform. And I think the same is true in sort of a trauma or an acute care situation. You walk into a room, you have those few beats of, oh, my goodness, what is happening in here? And then something clicks and something automatic takes over and allows you to perform in the same way. And I think the training for both is really quite similar. I think that my training in theater um, in some ways allowed me to become the physician that I am. Yeah, and, and that's, you know, you, thank you for eloquently describing the hypothesis of the entire Emergency Mind project, which is, which is that that idea of performing under pressure is its own skill and it cuts across a variety of disciplines. You know, for me, it was training in the martial arts growing up. And I realized after doing those first couple really critical resuscitations, hey, I'm I'm using the knowledge from medicine, but I'm actually using the skill from martial arts to to deliver that knowledge in a very similar way. What you're saying about, yeah, I'm using my training in theater. I recognize this feeling, right? There's this moment of I recognize this feeling. I felt it before. I know what's happening in my body. And I know that this is the feeling that happens before I perform well. And I think that crucial second half of that sentence, this is the feeling that happens before I perform well, is a really incredibly important point. Um, there's this amazing book called The Upside of Stress by Kelly, um, Kelly McGonigal, who's a PhD at Stanford. And she talks a lot about the idea that the way that we choose to frame what that feeling is to us is uh, crucial in terms of how we actually perform at anything. And, and it's a skill that we can learn. So you can take those feelings of fast heartbeat and nausea and wanting to throw up and jump around at the same time, which I'm sure everybody listening to this is familiar with some version of that. And you can make that, oh my God, I'm sick. I'm falling apart. I'm never going to make it. Or you can define that as this is the thing that happens before I step up and get it done. And in a way, it's a choice and it's practice. It's not something that necessarily happens overnight. I, I mean, and I guess I would I would say for me, it certainly didn't happen overnight. What was that like for you when you were starting out as a doctor, those first couple of codes? Did it happen overnight? Were you able to say, oh, yeah, no worries. I've done this a million times in theater. I can step up and do this. Or, or, or was there a learning curve in that as well? No, I think absolutely there was a learning curve. I mean, I think if I'd walked into a code situation and someone had said, can you sing a song from company? I would have been great. <laughs> but I think the idea of running a code situation when you're first starting out, it's terrifying to everyone. Um, we use a term in our house, my children like it, and we call it nervous sighted, right? You're nervous and excited mm. at the same time. And I have one situation that I remember quite well where I was at the end of my fellowship training where we sort of practiced being the attending physicians. Mm -hmm. And I had gotten a call that a very sick child was being transferred to us from an outside hospital. That's always advantageous because you have at least a little time to set up and prepare in the emergency department, which as you know, we don't always have. And I remember the child arriving looking so much sicker than I had thought she was going to be. And she arrived in the room and she looked frankly like she was going to die. And I walked into that room 
and everyone looked at me and I thought, oh my goodness, I am in charge of this room. And it felt like for me, time stopped. I felt like for 40 minutes, I stood there frozen in time. And that's really the danger, right? Is that that nervous excitement renders you paralyzed and you can't perform. And that's always, I think, the fear that we have, just like you said, that we're going to be destabilized by that feeling as opposed to energized or motivated to do our best. And I stood there and it was probably in truth 10 seconds that I stood there taking in the scene around me, recognizing the gravity of the situation before something clicked. And it it didn't click the way probably it clicks now, having been in this career for more than a decade. But I think at some point it clicked and maybe more slowly than it happens now, I understood the script. I mean, we use that term, a theater term, even in medicine, we develop illness scripts. We understand the scripts for the different situations that we're in. And even if it's your first time through a script, you still learn how to read it. You know how to read. You have a basic sense of the emotions and the machinations to work through. So I definitely remember that moment in time and how I sort of worked through that patient's care. And I think with every subsequent critically ill kid, I became a little bit better, a little bit better, um, as we all do. But I, I don't think I just breezed on stage and, you know did a full Hugh Jackman the first time around. I think, it, I think it took me a couple of, a couple of patients before, and even now. And I think, um, I think any of us would be lying to say that when we walk in a room of a critically ill patient, we don't have that tachycardia. I always say for my trainees, because kids typically have faster heart rates than adults, your goal in a critically ill situation is never to be more tachycardic than your patient. I think it's really wonderful to hear you say that the idea that as you continue to get better, it's not that your responses go away. It's not that your tachycardia disappears. It's not that you're not nervous. It's that you understand more and more what you're feeling is one input among many into your system that you have control over. It's one color to paint with. It's not the only color that you get. Um, And, you know, when I was studying pediatric emergency medicine under you, you know, you would have this ability to walk into a room and everybody around you would get calmer. You were, you were just an incredible center of gravity of calm as you walked in and people would sort of smile a little bit because they go, okay, Lauren's here. Cool. This is going to go well. And I, and I remember watching that and I remember thinking to myself, that's what I want to be. That's part of what I want to have when I go into a crisis. I want people around me to be like, oh, Dan's here. Okay. We, we're going to like, all of us can perform better now because we know there's this, there's this anchor, the center of gravity into it. And so first off, thank you for that. That like I've been channeling you as I've been doing my pediatric cases over the years. But that idea that that's a developed thing and that it's a continually practiced thing, that it doesn't just it, it doesn't just it, even as much as it clicks in that exact second, it, it's not a binary object. You don't just have it and then you're you're done forever. You've you've solved the riddle, you've fixed the puzzle. You never have to do it again. Every case you have to approach differently and you have to approach your 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 plan for it differently and those first couple moments are always a little chaotic and how you get through them is a unique is a unique process um so i guess let me let me shift and ask this then when you say it clicks what does that mean to you what does that feel like to you is there a thought that you have is there a thing that you do do you make it click what is that like Oh, that's such an interesting thought. I mean, it's, it seems like such a subconscious or unconscious phenomenon. It's almost hard, I think, to put it into words what happens. I think that probably it happens quickly, but if I had to sort of slow roll the tape in terms of what happens. So even yesterday, I worked a shift and I had a critically ill asthmatic teenager who came into our trauma bay who just looked terrible. I mean, air hunger, diaphoretic, Mm -hmm. just looked really quite ill. And I walked into the room. And when I say I knew what to do because it clicked for me, I think somewhere in the sort of Rolodex of scripts, medical scripts in my mind, I sort of went, rolled through them and said, critically ill, asthmatic, go. And I'm already looking almost at like a little cheat sheet in my own mind critically asthmatic, air hunger, think about 
intramuscular epinephrine, then move to continuous albuterol or stacked combivent NEBS, then go to IV therapeutics, think about respiratory early. And I think there's just these algorithms that we all have stacked away in the Rolodexes of our mind. I think I'm showing my age by using the term Rolodex, but I, <laughs> I said it and now I can't get it back. <laughs> I said it. And I think we all have them, but I just think our ability to sort of scroll through them gets quicker and quicker. So I think maybe that's what it is. It's almost bringing up the page in my mind to work through that. Um, and it's interesting what you said, and I'm um, grateful and, and humbled by that um, homage to my life in pediatrics. But another thing from theater, and I promise not to, to beat this horse so much, but um, a lot of what we do in theater is about mirroring Right? We do these exercises, these scene exercises where you're working with a partner and the idea is you listen and then you give back what that person means or you put out into the scene or into the universe the emotion you want to get back. And I think in a high stress situation, that's something really important to consider. And so, again, with this idea of what clicks for me, when I walk into an acute situation and I'm sweating and my heart is racing and all of these emotions we all experience, I do have a different sort of emotional click, not an illness click, but the emotional click of what do I want to bring into this room right now? If I want this to go well, if I want everyone to be calm and performing to the best of their abilities for the best of this child, what do I need to bring into the room? And then I have to think about that click as well. I want to be calm. I want to be in command. I want to seem competent, but humble. I want to listen to everyone around me, but I also want them to listen to me. And so I think there's something very deliberate, but also somewhat unconscious about bringing that emotional state, that emotional click into the room as well to make sure, again, everyone performs to the best of their ability. Do you or did you practice that? Like that ability to, I mean, certainly you practiced it in theater, right? The idea of putting emotion out into the universe. But when you were thinking back, maybe to me, this was sort of like mid to late residency when you're just getting setups where you're going to start running the critical cases yourself. And I, I remember a lot of us sitting around saying, okay, well, what are, what are we going to act like when we walk into the room? How are we going to stand? What are we going to say? What's the tone of our voice going to be? Did you, did you practice that? Is, did you have, how did you develop that sense of bringing the emotional package as well as the medical package into a room with you? Well, I think so much of what we do when we're training in medicine is learning by example, right? You have a whole host of senior physicians from whom you're learning, and that's very important because of the qualities you sort of choose to emulate and those you choose to don't. And I think it's equally important to see both. Um, I think physicians who you think are practicing in a way that you hope to practice and those who are practicing in a way that feels maybe a little bit less organic to who you are or how you hope to practice medicine. And that's sort of how you form your identity as a physician. But again, I think, I don't know if cultivated is the right word I'm looking for, but I tried to cultivate some amalgam of all the physician behaviors that I wanted to bring to the table. Um, and I think for me, I'm a pretty naturally kind of caffeinated, frenetic, wired person. And so calm is not sort of my natural state of being. But I recognize the benefit of calm in, in one of those situations. So for me, I had to work a little harder to pull that from within and develop that part of my persona because I recognized its importance in the medical arena. So I would say I did have to practice. And I think for me, practicing was both practicing in my medical life, practicing in with the sickest kids, watching other physicians practice and thinking, how could this have been done a little bit differently? And what would I have brought to the table? And, and honestly, practicing in my actual, my real life too, in my non-medical life. Um, and I think about all the stresses that we all face, certainly now, but even before now, just being a, you know, a working parent and mother and having other interests and other obligations and how to have that balance feel calm for me. Um, so I think that's sort of a combination of cultivating that 
And I think for me also looking for balance, what are the other elements of my life that I can pull in that make me feel sort of centered and happy, um, which allows me to be centered and happy and perhaps then more calm at work. In, in episode 24, uh, Kristen Holmes, who's the VP of human performance at Whoop, said some version of, you know, what we do in our days off matters so much to what we can do in our days on. And in that context, she was talking about sleep and nutrition and exercise. But I think it applies really directly to what you're saying, too, which is that if we want to bring calm and peaceful leadership to our trauma rooms. We have to practice being calm and peaceful on our days when we're not in the trauma rooms. And that's everything. And that 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 applies to whatever it is that we're doing. It's a it's a constant practice. It's even as much as it's a switch when we walk into that room, it's not a thing we can only embody there. It's a thing we need to continue to work on. So I, I think that's I think that's really wonderful. Um, I, I want to shift gears just slightly if we can and, and go, you know, we've been talking in some sense about sort of preparing and training and getting ready for that first one or two moments of a critical case. Let's let's like slide forward in time briefly and we're slightly farther into the case. So and it could be the same super sick asthmatic person or it could be, um, you know, a young septic child or, or anything you want to sort of front load in your imagination here. But when we're thinking about midway through the case, we're working hard, we've started those first couple steps, things are starting to click together a little bit. Um, and we find ourselves really working with this sick child. There's a couple things that make pediatric cases in some sense more challenging than adult cases from a um, mental model point of view. One of which is that we have to do a much more sophisticated job of tailoring our treatments to the exact patient that we have in front of us. So in adults, you have sort of an abstract treatment, you know, give one milligram of whatever. And it's pretty much the same for any adult you could possibly come up with. In peds, you have to take that concept, which is I want to deliver some but not too much of a particular medication and map it onto the child in front of you, which which for those of us that don't do this that much is actually a significant barrier in terms of our ability to perform sometimes doing that, that mental, that mathematics and that sort of mental mapping of things. But do you feel that at all? Or is that like so far gone in your past that, that you just naturally... Uh, map this theoretical treatment to this patient? No, I think, I mean, yes, maybe I'm a little far gone, but I also think that it's just a different framework from the frameworks that you're used to operating in within general emergency medicine compared to pediatric emergency medicine. I think we recognize, right, that we have such a range of patients, even within the pediatric group, right, from you know, newborn infants to college-age students. It's a huge different differential in terms of illness presentations and how we manage care and what medications we use. So I, I think by nature of what we do, there's just a little bit more of an expansive infrastructure that then we sort of plug our patients into, and that just develops with time and experience too. Um, I agree. I think that you know, one of the jokes I make about being a pediatric emergency medicine physician is we do all this weight-based dosing of medications, which is something that I know is not generally done in general emergency medicine for adults. And when you're preparing to be a physician, you have to take all this high-level math, right, all this calculus and math that I typically do not use in my daily life. And my joke, of course, is that the best math preparation for me as a pediatric emergency medicine physician would have been to just be doing simple, simple multiplication with 15 people screaming at me at one time. And if I'd only had that class, I would have been very well prepared for my career. And maybe I could have skipped some of that calculus. So I think some of that comes with time and experience too. And I think when I'm teaching peds emergency medicine, both the pediatric residents, but also emergency medicine residents, a lot of what I'm trying to do is to sort of simplify what the care is like, not minimize it and not minimize its importance, but try to simplify it so that it becomes more accessible. I think that because for many physicians, taking care of acutely ill children is quite terrifying if it's not the norm, trying to sort of destigmatize those patients and minimize that fear, again, is really going to help performance. So I think part of my job is to help young physicians create scripts within whatever pre-existing infrastructure they already have to try to minimize the mental load 
when they walk into a room with a mm. sick child. So developing a better, more robust framework ahead of time helps you cognitively offload when you're actually in the room. And that's sort of what you're describing when you're going through your mental Rolodex, you're checking your, your files of different structures and saying, okay, I'm going to start this script, trusting myself that I'm going to catch back up to it and, and get back to the front of that thought as I keep going. Um, it, it's interesting the way you said that about that, that taking care of uh, sick children can be terrifying in a way that taking care of other patients, even if equally ill, whatever that means, equally ill, it, it, you know, uh, feels different. And I think part of that, maybe something you said at the beginning, that we just tend to feel differently about kids than we do about adults sometimes. And so there's this extra component on top of it. Um, another thing that's often there is, of course, the parents of the kids and the family of the kids, which is an entirely different wrinkle. How do you find working with that has changed over the years? Well, I always have loved working with families, and I think that's also something about pediatrics. Yes, the children are technically my patients, but really the family is my patient, right? The whole family unit is really my patient, and that's who I'm taking care of um, when I'm working clinically. I think that certainly becoming a parent um, definitely changed the way I approach patient care. I think my empathy naturally just really changed. I think when I was younger in my career, when I hadn't had children yet, parents would come in so worried about various things that I didn't really think were so worrisome. Um, and then once I had my own children, I sort of recognized the depth of fear and worry that accompanies the depth of love that you feel for your children. So I think that was sort of a, a seminal moment for me in my career. Um, and I think also just the experience of recognizing that what's best for a child is taking the best care of their family at the same time. That if you can't take care of the whole family, you're probably not going to have the optimal care for the child. And when I see a child in the emergency department, I only have that brief interaction with them. I only have that moment in time. Uh, but the family is with them forever. And sometimes that's wonderful. And sometimes there are situations where that's less wonderful. But I think being able to be impactful or have a meaningful interaction with a family potentially will pay tenfold going forward. So I think I really try to think about the whole family unit as my total patient. And I think just with experience, with being a parent, I think my ability to interact with families, some of those interactions are wonderful, some of them are more difficult. I think that's improved with time. And again, Going back to the theater, you know, so much of what I do when I walk into a room is think, who does this family need me to be for them right now? And not that I'm pretending to be a person I'm not or a physician I'm not or I'm practicing medicine any differently, but sometimes I recognize that a family needs me to be a compassionate mother in addition to being a physician. Sometimes a family needs me to sort of toe a hard line and tell them exactly what's going to happen, tell them what to do, because they're not ready to make that kind of decision. And so I think there's a little bit of reading the room or reading the scene that also I've gotten better at simply just by experience. Lauren, that's such another level on top of everything to say, not only am I going to take my knowledge and I'm going to do the best I can to deliver it to this patient, I'm going to deliver it in a vehicle that's the best vehicle that that family is equipped to see at that time. What a, what a wonderful and incredibly challenging and interesting thing for that. What What's your advice about that to somebody listening who's just starting out? You know, maybe they're a medical student or, or an EMT student or whatever it is who wants to be able to deliver that care in a way that not only helps the person, but the community around that person. I think it has to start with good listening. I think really, and not just listening to the history of the present illness, right? The HPI, we, you know, we send young trainees into a room and say, get the story of what's happening. And the story that we're interested in when we're really trying to distill everything down and move quickly in the emergency department is the story of the illness. We wanna know what's wrong, what's the complaint, what do we need to focus on, what do we need to treat? And when I say listen, yes, of course we need to listen to that, but we sort of need to listen to the whole room. What is the child doing? What is the family doing? Who are the caregivers in the room? What's the temperature in the room? And I think really listening to the whole scene and having more of a bird's eye view of the situation. And again, that takes time. When you're just building your medical knowledge base, 
you need to focus on asking the medical questions. And I think as you become a little bit more sophisticated in your thinking, which just comes with experience and years of training, I think you're able to take one step further and further back and see a little bit more of the forest. Um, and then I think coming out of the room and being able to say, like you said, what's the medical care I need to deliver and how do I best deliver it in this room specifically? And I think something else that I found very challenging in my early career were these sort of difficult interactions with families where parents stressed, angry in an emergency department setting, you know, would yell or be frustrated or would challenge what I was saying or would curse or um, treat uh, each other with a lack of kindness that I found upsetting and having to take a step out of the room and say, okay, why am I reacting like this to this family? What do I need to do to make myself feel better so I can go back in the room to take good care of this patient? And it's not always so easy to do that. Um, and sometimes early in my career, I definitely remember going to senior physicians and saying, I'm having a very challenging time in this room. Can you come in and help me bail me out? Or probably the best response is, can you go in and can I watch how you handle this situation? And again, it's just about emulating behaviors and recognizing which behaviors you want to carry with you as you move forward in your training. Yeah. Yeah, I remember distinctly a case where I had a parent spend a large amount of time yelling at me that they thought they were convinced I was trying to give their child more cancer. And mm -hmm. it, you know, these interactions are so tough, especially as we are sometimes strung out and tired and hungry and doing everything you can to be a human and take care of a person. And at the same time, I think that's that sort of rough grinding edge is where a lot of that growth happens in terms of how do you deliver the care in the most compassionate, humanistic way possible. Um, and I love that idea of asking a colleague to come in with you and just watch for a second. Just take us take a step back and be like, hey, let's find a different approach. How do you handle this? I just want to see what you do here and pick up on all those those different nonverbal things that maybe you don't even know you're doing differently. Um, what about as we're talking about being a human? What about the end of the case? How do you go home? Because I think showing up to work is a skill and going home is a skill. And, and this is something we talk about a lot on the podcast, but, but especially when you deal with a really challenging case, especially in pediatrics, how do you come back home to yourself or your family or whoever there is at home and, and wash that piece off of you? I find that that's probably the most challenging part of this job. Um, is compartmentalizing it in a healthy way and saying, I'm going to leave this totally chaotic or terrible situation that I've just dealt with at work and come home and now be fully present at home. And I admit one way I do that is a little bit of a cheat, which is that I typically prefer to work in the evenings. And the reason for that is that when I go to a shift, whether it's four or five o'clock in the evening, um, usually it's fairly busy in the emergency department at that time. I tend to be more of an evening person anyway, so I sort of feel a little more switched on then. And I sort of come in, I hit the ground running. When the end of my shift comes around, whether that's one or two in the morning, when I come home, everyone else in my house is asleep. And I think that really allows me time alone time to be sort of restorative. And I know that sounds so lofty that I come home and meditate. And really what I often do is eat peanut butter out of a jar and watch some horrible reality television that I would be too embarrassed to admit that I watch on a podcast. But, you know, something that sort of fills my cup in whatever way it needs to be refilled and gives me the mental space to process whatever has happened or to just give myself some distance from it so it just fades a little bit more for me. I find the hardest shifts for me are the ones where I have a difficult shift, I work all day, and I come home and I say as you know, a mom of two wonderful children, but still two children, that I come home and then I have my second day. 
which is coming home and doing geometry homework or making dinner or whatever it is. And I find that very difficult for me when I've done a day shift. So I think for my own mental health and frankly, for the mental health of my family, I try to skew my work towards the evenings so that I see who I need to see during the day. I can do my academic work during the day, but my clinical work is in the evening such that I have a built-in time alone and decompression time, you know, late at night or early into the morning, and then feel a little bit more reset the next day. And implicit in that is the idea that that while everybody works with this differently, most of us require time and space in order for things to settle and things to start washing out and being able to loosen up enough to move. Um, actually, speaking about acting and the actor Tom Hardy had this really fascinating thing to say about this as he works with actually the Mission Critical Teams Institute, which that he talked about when he embodies a role and he does method acting. When he leaves that role and gets ready to do another role or go back to his normal self, there's there's a residue of it. That that experience, that character leaves a residue on him. And the act of of letting that residue wash out as opposed to building up and choking things is an incredibly important piece of of his job as he views it. And and I think it's a good reminder to think about the case for us is, you know, the case itself might be over, but it doesn't mean that our work with that case stops there, especially when it's an incredibly difficult case. And, and we need to have that other piece of it to process that residue before we before we're done, before we go back to our family, before we're going back to ourselves. Um, and it's sometimes better and sometimes worse when the people that we return to aren't medical uh, and sometimes easier and sometimes harder. But I actually, I, I like that trick of saying, well, when is everybody else not going to be around? And let me sort of set myself up for that because to create that space is an incredibly important piece of it, whatever that space looks like for you and totally no judgment on whatever TV you're watching, I promise. But <laughs> No, and I and I I love um, I love that thought from Tom Hardy about this idea about the residue of our patients, and I think I always think that that's important to mention too. I I really love what I do, and I think that the work that we do is so important, and it's also incredibly challenging and exhausting, and I think that there's a lack of acknowledging sometimes the toll that it takes, the amount of work that it takes, not only to take care of patients, but I think, like you said, to stay prepared, to stay sharp, to perform all the time. I think there's a sort of a cumulative exhaustion and psychological toll that that takes. And that's not to be discouraging about the work. I think it's just an acknowledgement of the toll that it takes and to allow ourselves, as I allow myself, space literal space, but also time to indulge in the things that make us feel better, whatever those may be, so we can feel restored to go back to doing this work again. I think we have to acknowledge that in order to perform in these high-stress situations, it really sort of takes its toll um, on how you function at work, on how you function in your personal life. Um, the mental load that we all carry with us can be quite heavy. Um, and I think all of us need to find whatever it does, whatever we can do to, I don't know, find that emotional restoration such that we can go back and do the work. Um, and even if it's sort of varying the kind of work that we do or how much we do it or when we do it, um, this idea that you know, there's so much machismo associated with emergency medicine, like we just go and we save lives and then we come home and we run triathlons. And then I, I think they're just there. We need to allow for a little bit more sort of forgiveness and softness and admission of the fact that this really takes its toll. And all of us who choose to do this, many of us really love it and wouldn't choose something different, but that it is quite difficult and finding it challenging and needing to find outlets for it, uh, I think, is integral to being able to perform as well. It's a fascinatingly wonderful thing about our job that it involves both, you know, complicated frameworks of critical decision making under pressure and also peanut butter. <laughs> it's very important. The peanut butter is very important. <laughs> 
Lauren, I, I can't believe it. It's been almost an hour already. I have so many other things I want to dig into you, dig in with you about, you know, everything from screaming math class to sort of like more about the triggering of like how something clicks at the beginning to our shared time together at Brown and anything else. But, um, but we, we have to wrap this part up. So we have to come back for round two first. And second, what is your, what's your parting challenge? What do you want to leave people with? Anybody listening to this, medical or not medical, what do you want them to try this week to try to capitalize on anything that you learned over your time performing under pressure? I thought about this. <clears throat> I knew you were going to ask this question. And what I'm going to say is going to be terribly pediatric, so I hope that you will forgive me. But I think... One of the things that I really felt the loss of during this past sort of six months or so, um, in addition to so many of the larger losses that so many of us have experienced, is this idea of giving everybody a hug. I am a super high-touch person. I sort of hug everyone I meet, and I, I think it's just an expression of warmth and gratitude and the excitement about connecting. And certainly I bring that to my pediatric practice as well in a very appropriate manner. But this idea that you need some physical connection, especially all of us, but a child certainly in distress or in the emergency department, and how do you convey warmth and comfort? Um, and now with so much of our physical interactions being removed from us, I have been really working on how do I convey the experience of a hug without physically giving a hug? How can I bring these moments of warmth and positivity and compassion, yes, into my work interactions when I'm head to toe in PPE and no child can see my face or my smile? Um, and how do I bring that into my personal life when so many of us are struggling with all of what's going on right now in the world? How do I bring a hug into an interaction with my family or my colleagues or my friends? And I think that these brief moments of warmth and love are incredibly important always, but certainly right now. And I think it's very easy to go down sort of a rabbit hole of negativity and social media and really get deep in those weeds and so I guess my challenge would be to think about what is a way to bring a hug into your day-to-day -day interactions. It makes yourself feel better. It will make someone else feel better. And again, it's this idea of mirroring. What, what do you want to see? What do you want to bring into the world? And so I guess that is my, my very pediatric-sounding challenge, which is how can you bring a daily hug, or more than a daily hug, into your life and put it out into the world right now? So good. So good. Lauren, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It's a total joy to get to talk with you about this again. I loved being here and I loved being able to reconnect with you. Thank you so much for having me. Okay, folks, that brings us to the end of this conversation. I hope you enjoyed it. I hope you found something useful that you can use next time you find yourself in an emergency or a crisis. Again, if you want to dig deeper into a lot of the concepts that we covered here, sign up for the Emergency Mind newsletter, Knowledge Under Pressure. It is free and it is awesome. You can join by going to www.emergencymind.com slash sign up. Also, as a reminder, our mission here at the Emergency Mind is to dig into lessons around applying knowledge under pressure, not to provide medical advice. Our opinions, as expressed on this podcast or elsewhere, are our own and not necessarily those of our employers or the hospitals at which we work. So keep up the good work, keep training, and good luck out there.